Welcome to Sobriety Checkpoint. I'm your host, Felicia Hermley. I'm a 12-stepper turned therapist. I'm married and I have two littles under five. I love Jesus, but have had my fair share of struggling with church culture and religion. I know what it's like to be stuck in a restless, irritable, and discontent rut, drunk and sober. In this podcast, you're going to find solutions to navigating mental health, spirituality, and relationships to experience the peace you've been craving. It's time for that desperately sought after solo target run. Grab your keys and let's go for a drive. There's no judgment or breathalyzer at this sobriety checkpoint. Thank you so much for being with me today, Janice. I'm excited to have you here on the podcast. Today I have Janice Johnson Dowd on the show. She is a licensed master social worker, author, speaker, recovering alcoholic, and mother to four children. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm um glad that you're here. I came across Janice on Instagram and was just really excited to see a fellow social worker, fellow mom, and you know, I hope to one day have author after my name as well. And the other thing too that really excited me about you was your I mean, your Instagram is called Parenting and Recovery. So uh, this is this is what my podcast is all about. It's all about being a sober parent, being a sober mom or dad. And speaking of that, before we hit record, you saw how chaotic <laughs> I am over here. I have a cold. I um, will have to probably, you know, hit the mute button a couple of times to cough today. and. I am recording in my car because I've got a sick kid inside and my microphone picks up every single cough, even if he's on the other side of the house. So this has been a a fun, a fun way to get started today, but I'm excited that it is with you parenting and recovery. So you get, you get that, you get what it's about to have to, to, you know, change gears. And um, I'm just excited to, to hear from you. So I guess if we could get started, you know, I'd really love to to know uh, a little bit about your your journey into sobriety, what what it was like, and what happened as far as getting getting sober before we get into, you know, your book and other details. Well, I was a late in life drinker. I didn't really start drinking until my forties because I grew up in an alcoholic home, and you know, emerged from that, your classic adult child of an alcoholic, people pleasing, superficial. I was the mascot of the family, always trying to make everyone happy. Very little sense of self, um, low self-esteem, insecure, all of that. But I was aware that our family was different. And I swore to myself at a pretty young age that I would never become an alcoholic. And I would never put my kids through what I went through. So I did the next best thing. And I became a social worker. (laughs) I find that 
many of us in the helping profession come from dysfunctional families. I think we're drawn to it and it comes naturally to us. So I did experiment with alcohol and drugs as a young person, but honestly, from really early on, I was so controlling and I never liked the feeling of being out of control that alcohol gave me. And marijuana just made me feel paranoid and anxious. So I, I used them under peer pressure situations, but, um, I really don't think that I abused them when I was growing up. Part of that too is because I was a very serious athlete and I, in a way, I don't know how people think about this, but I think I almost approached my sport like an addiction because that's where I had the sense of self-esteem. It's where I escaped the problems from home. It gave me an immediate group of friends. I was a swimmer. And that gave me a, a college scholarship, which led into the social work career. So um, throughout my 20s and 30s, I drank occasionally, uh, didn't experiment with any drugs. Because again, I was just like too uptight, too afraid of what kind of reaction that I would have. I mean, I had that. I remember those movies in health class that showed like people on bad trips. And I thought that will surely be me if something's going to go wrong, because that it's also ACA thinking. If something's going to go wrong to anyone using a hallucinogen, it'll be me. So I, I steered clear of that. My 20s, I really focused on building a career. And it was natural for me to go into drug and alcohol treatment. I uh, worked as the family therapist and several really well-known treatment centers. And I think I did a pretty good job because for, I could look at things from the family's point of view. I um, did that until I met and married my now ex-husband and until we started having kids. I, unlike you, really struggled juggling. I had four kids in eight years, juggling being a mom, being a wife, being a social worker, and, and just having general peace, you know, not giving away too much of myself. Uh, my husband also was traveling. He traveled at least three nights a week. He begged me to not work. So our compromise was that I worked part-time and then less demanding jobs. And so I worked more in medical social work and in social service agencies where the call schedule wouldn't be as difficult. So I'm sure you experienced that too, because you have a number of hats that you wear. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. I think as I was listening to you talk about all the hats, I was just thinking about the the fact that it's so easy to put so much pressure on ourselves to do everything. And I think one of the people that really helps me with that, you know, I talk to my to, to my best friend and and we'll chat about all of the hats, all the hats that we we have to wear. And we really support each other in in giving each other I don't know, encouragement to be okay with the fact that we can't do it all, all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. For me, it was really a tough struggle because I grew up with a mom who 
um, came from a really traditional family. She was very invested in like, I want you to be able to do it all. I mean, she's kind of a very much a feminist before her time. And um, she put a lot of pressure on me. She kept saying, I don't understand why you're staying at home. You have a, you know, master's degree. You're not using that. You might get trapped in this marriage, you know, if you don't maintain your individuality. So I heard that from one side. I also heard, this was my struggle in my 30s. Um, I also lived in a community where there were a lot of professional working moms And I would find myself comparing myself because that's, again, the ACA stuff gets stirred up. And and that was a lot of internal struggle. And for me, growing up in that alcoholic family, I was not good at asking for help. In fact, we had no family living near us. Um, I was really good at faking it. My perfectionism kicked in and I set standards for myself that was really hard. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I loved being a mom. I loved being a stay-at-home mom, but I was very grateful to be a working mom too when I went back to work. And I think that those internal struggles led to my drinking in my 40s. So I'd like to flash back and say, you know, my coping mechanisms growing up was to be cheerful and friendly and happy and the cute little wife, child. Um, and then it was to be an athlete. And then it became to be the perfect mom. All of these things that are really just lies, you know? And um, so when I was finally spent my 30s, basically pregnant, breastfeeding, when we finally moved off out of that phase in my life, I started drinking socially and um, and, and gradually increased. I can't say exactly where I went from like a social drinker to a problem drinker to a full-blown alcoholic. It snuck up on me and I was in full-blown denial. You know, I just didn't want to look at it. I felt incredible shame and guilt that I was drinking so much because here I'd been a social worker who'd worked in the field. I should have known better. You know, I should be smarter than this. Um, I felt I could see that my drinking was impacting my role as a mother. Didn't want to look at that. A lot of guilt and shame. And I carried that into early recovery, which we'll talk about in a minute, I suppose. But anyhow, my alcoholism evolved and I became exactly the alcoholic that my dad had been and um, hurting my kids and being full of guilt and shame about it. Yeah. Essentially, I, the last couple of years were just an emotional health. I um, was in denial. I wanted to get better. I knew I was unhappy. So I, before I went to AA, I tried everything else first. I mean, I got on an antidepressant and anti-anxiety, sleeping medication, but you know, that just made the problem worse because that's when I started having blackouts. You can't, in my mind, you can't mix like Ambien and um, alcohol and remember anything the next day. But anyhow, I went to treatment. Um, inpatient treatment. And uh, I went 
thinking I'd be there for four weeks. I went with a little bit of arrogance, but also my a great deal of shame because of my experience. I thought I knew what was going to happen. I thought I'm going to get a treatment. My family's going to participate in the family program. I'm going to get better. I'm going to work on some of those childhood issues, which I had been avoiding all those years. And, and I'd get out of treatment. We'd live happily ever after. But that definitely is not what happened. The short elevator pitch that I have about this is that in early recovery, I did almost as much damage to my relationships with my kids that I did in active addiction. And you know, I didn't see it until I was about five or six months sober. So any questions or should I jump into the treatment? Oh yeah, no, definitely. I I actually did have a couple of, of comments. I think it's interesting hearing you say, you know, I should have known better. And I think that that could be common for, I'm sure, a lot of groups of people, you know, kind of like just thinking that, you know, say, say you grew up in a family where alcoholism or or addiction was present and growing up in that thinking, okay, well, that's them, that's their problem, but I can handle myself, right? I'm, I'm strong, especially after all of the success with school and a career and having kids and thinking that it's something that you can handle just like all the other things. Right. Um, And I can see how much that can attribute to that shame creation. Right. I should have known better. And, and the shame that comes with that. How did you come to that decision of going into treatment? You know, how did you decide? It pretty much was a intervention by my best friend and a family member who, I mean, I had been going to AA for like three months, but never getting more than like a week or 10 days of sobriety. And um, Mardi Gras is a big holiday in Alabama as it is in Louisiana. And so my cousin was coming to visit me and I thought, well, I'll just start again after Mardi Gras. You know, I've been able to like go a few days without anyhow to make a long story short you know I bottomed out during Mardi Gras <laughs> so the drinking and um there was a tension between myself and my husband at that time because he wanted me to get sober and I get I again I get a couple of days and then I do something stupid so yeah I went to treatment I went to inpatient treatment um from intervention um out of fear that my that I would lose my kids. And uh, I went thinking that I would go for four weeks. I ended up staying for 12 weeks. I um, And then after that, I went to a halfway house for three months. And then after that, I went to a year sober living home. The problem, the, like the part of the, that I was out of my control was the fact that this was all in central Alabama. And my family was in South Alabama. They were like 200 miles away. So initially it became, well, I could use the excuse. They're so far away. They can't come up. And um, yeah, so the distance was a hurdle that I hid behind. And let me back up by saying, so of course, during active addiction, there was, I created a wall or a divide between myself and my family members 
or let's just talk about the kids, between myself and my kids. When I went to treatment, being a good, you know, people pleaser, I threw myself into treatment. I became the perfect patient. And when they said, we think you should stay for eight weeks, we think you should go to the bigger program because you're sharing some PTSD issues, some grief issues that, you know, you could benefit from more intensive care. So I just followed along with that. The mis- That's where I started making mistakes with my kids and my families because I didn't include them on that process. I fell back to my old childhood stuff of being very superficial. You know, I think in those 12 weeks, I think my kids only came up two times. And one time was a total disaster because I put on that little cute GMS. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the weather. How's school going? And um, thankfully, my daughter at the time, like after about a half hour, was like, had a meltdown and confronted me about how superficial and how they didn't care about, you know, the power outages or the storm that we had experienced. And for some people that might've made them like, it might've woken them up, but for me, it shut me down more. And I really, you know, uh, I hid behind the program, the principles of the program to put a wall between myself and my kids, not intentionally. I was just so afraid of being rejected, of being abandoned of having to look at or hear about the things I had done or said, you know, during a blackout that I hid behind that wall. And so that when the treatments and, you know, most, I don't know what your experience is in getting sober, but most treatment centers, the focus is on the, the addict or alcoholic. And um, for me, when I would bring up the issues like, I really want to get my kids back or you don't know how hard it is for me. I'm basically a single mother when, you know, all those excuses, I would constantly get redirected. And your problem is yourself. You've got to get sober and stay sober. Everything else will fall into place, which could be true for some people, but it wasn't for me. And here's one of the things why I wrote the book and, um, And I love talking about this topic is because I think that we could, on the professional side, provide addicts and alcoholics, and this can be done in outpatient programs. It can even be slid into 12-step programs in one way. But we could provide earlier on information support about how to repair, rebuild relationships with your family and your kids as opposed to being so focused on the individual. The treatment center that I worked in had a, you know, 30 years ago, had a great family program. And um, where our addicts and alcoholics actually got involved in the family week. The family program, and I'm not saying this is bad, the facility, the treatment center I went to was great. I mean, great. They saved my life. But they, the, we were not all at all involved in the family program. And there was very little like family counseling, marital counseling available or provided. And I know that's idealistic, but I 
just think that we can do a better job from the professional side on helping addicts and alcoholics become aware of the mistakes they're making and make changes in their relationships earlier on. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's what you mean, or if you could say more about hiding behind the principles. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering if there's a connection with what you were talking about with the program where you got sober. What do you mean about hiding behind the principles? I really kind of want to dig there a little bit more because it's almost seeming like that's where there was that disconnect between you know, focusing on yourself and repairing those relationships. But you can go ahead and tell me if I'm on the right track there. So you absolutely are on the right track. And I'm glad that you brought that up. So 30 years ago, when I was a family therapist, I remember hearing family members and coming to the aftercare program go saying, complaining about their partners, their addicts or alcoholics and saying, you know what? They are so invested in their world of recovery now. I see them less. They still seem as as inconsistent. We're still not able to talk. I mean, and some people go like, it's almost like they joined a cult, you know, and and I, and that is really kind of what happened for me in it too, in that I embraced myself in the recovery culture. I mean, I felt really comfortable at my treatment center. And which I don't think is uncommon that you get that kind of like, this is a safe environment. You're among like-minded people. These people have heard the worst about you now and they still accept you. Um, Whereas your family member may still be judgmental, confused. And um, so in terms of hiding behind the program, I was able to get, well, they tell me I have to work on my program first. I have to the best thing for me to go to a halfway house, you know, and be amongst other women who have similar like minds. And I, I, I really did. I kind of, and I, you know, I was one of the older women at the halfway house. So I almost like created a new family at the halfway house. Like the younger women there were like my older kids, you know, and, um, We certainly were friends and peers, but I started to get some of my family needs, my sense of acceptance from my recovery peers. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that that is that environment, that culture that I can sense that you are talking about is, you know, from, from being in the rooms myself, there's just a culture that is different than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to just be in it. And I get what you're saying about hiding behind that. And it's almost like it's like it, it created both. I mean, you had physical distance between you and your family, but it sounds like there was also emotional distance and disconnection. Absolutely. And it was fueled by my fears of rejection and abandonment. So, I mean, it kind of goes back to that concept that, you know, when you take the coping mechanism, our coping mechanisms away of alcohol or drug use or behavioral addiction, we feel everything more strongly. Yeah. You know, and it takes a while for us to develop new coping skills. 
So I I think that's kind of where I was at. Thank you so much for listening. Come back next week to hear part two of Janice's story. I also wanted to remind you that I'm currently looking for listeners who would like to have a 15-minute Zoom call with me so that I can learn more about you in order to bring you more relevant content that will support your recovery journey. I want to know who you are, what you worry about, what you wish or hope for. If you're interested in doing this with me, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a $50 Target gift card. Please reach out to me via email or DM. My contact information is in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before you go, please subscribe and leave a five-star written review. Reviews help boost my ratings, which helps other parents in recovery find my show. If you're interested in emotional sobriety coaching, please reach out and schedule a call. Check out the show notes for my contact info and social links. Don't forget to like, follow, and share with a friend. I'm super excited to know this podcast is helping you. Tune in Thursdays for the latest episode. I'll see you back here on your next Target Run. Until next time. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. We are stronger than we think we are. So fight and show your strength. Good and grace from our God. Good and grace from our God. Good and grace from our God. Oh, good and grace from our God.